Now we turn now back to that passage, Romans chapter 2, verses 1 to 16. And as I've mentioned already in this series, we're, we're going to work our way much quicker through Romans than we did when we, when we looked at this book uh, about 10 years ago. Um, we're doing more of an overview of uh, the passages and the chapters uh, contained uh, in this letter of Paul to the Romans. I want to consider with you three main points uh, in this um, subject of God's righteous judgment, borrowing from verse 5, uh, which mentions the righteous judgment of God, the title for the sermon. So the three main points are, is this. First of all, in verses 1 to 3, we want to look at the unrighteous judgment of man. Secondly, in verses 4 and 5, the righteous judgment of God. And then verses 6 to 16, we're going to look at the basis or the grounds of God's judgment, which is fourfold. And we'll give the the fourfold nature of that as we get to the third uh, point. So first of all, the unrighteous judgment of man. And what Paul is doing in this part of Romans is really exposing the nature of man, uh, the sinfulness of man, the depravity of man, the the hypocrisy of man, whether they be Jew or Gentile. And we saw in chapter 1 that he deals with the Gentiles, and now in chapter 2 and in chapter 3 he will deal primarily with the Jews, but again, including all people as well. Which leads us right up, as we said, to the end of section 2 of Romans, right up to the end of verse 20 of chapter 3. And then we begin a new section in chapter 3 in verse 21. So the unrighteous judgment of man, first of all, unrighteous because of the personal guilt of such judges. It says in verse 1, therefore thou art inexcusable. A judge that has no moral basis. A judge that has no justifying righteousness. And therefore unrighteous in their very nature. But also because of the humanness. The humanity of the judge. It says, therefore thou art inexcusable, O man. We are but men. We're so quick to judge. We're so quick we, we find it so easy to pass judgment. And here Paul is saying, you're but a man. And again in scripture, uh, uh, the scriptures say, Lord, uh, make them know that they are but men. And that's what we need. And, and again, as Nadab and Abayu in, in our call to worship, and again, it's really important that we tie all the parts of the service into, into this message. As Nadab and Abihu approach the Lord, they they think that they are competent judges to bring this strange fire before the Lord. Not realizing they are but men. And how many in the church today are doing such things. Thinking that they have the right to make judgment in spiritual things, and not to submit themselves wholly and completely to the ordinance of God. But thirdly, unrighteous because of the insignificance of the judge. Look at the the phraseology that Paul uses here. Whosoever thou art that judgest. Who are you? Who are we? Who am I? 
There's a sense in the, the, the emphasis that he's saying, who do you think you are, oh man? Unrighteousness because we are insignificant. There's a day coming when every man, woman, and every child shall stand before the judge of eternity and realize that there is only one judge. There is only one who is competent, righteous enough, divine enough to pass judgment upon the world. But also, righteous or unrighteous because, and this is, it gets worse, because of the hypocrisy of the judge. For wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself, for thou that judgest doest the same things. There's, there's nothing worse than somebody that goes around and is always passing judgment on another and secretly doing the very thing themselves. How careful we need to be. How examining of ourselves we need to be. Pointing the finger at self before we point it at anybody else. And and be more concerned about judging ourselves. And again, as we come to the Lord's table, it says, when we judge ourselves, we shall not be judged. One of the most important things we do as we come to the Lord's table is we say afresh, Lord, I am the sinner. Christ is the Savior. But also, fifthly, unrighteous because of the judgment of God against such hypocritical judges. Verse 2. But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. You see... Hypocritical judges ultimately don't really care about truth, but God does care about truth. Pilate said, what is truth? In a sort of a, you know, smug, casting off attitude. What is truth? What are you talking about? But Christ cares about truth. God cares about truth. And therefore they are unrighteous. But then sixthly and lastly on this first point, unrighteous because of the vain hopes of such judges. Verse 3. And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things, and doest the same thing, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God. This was a theme that the the Puritans often um, uh, came back to. Is this vain hope of the unregenerate religious person. This vain hope that their hypocritical religion, that their outward religion, that their religion that was too like the Jews of Christ's day and the Apostles' day was enough to escape the judgment of God. Oh, brothers and sisters, we have to be serious about this. We cannot think that just because we are members of a reformed church that that makes us right before God. That just because we can speak theology, just because we can talk about uh, the Reformation and so on, that this somehow makes us better than others. This was the fault of the Jews. This was their exact fault. And therefore they became unrighteous judges again scripture does not condemn judgment in fact scripture says we are to make righteous judgment 
but we're not to be unrighteous judges. And then secondly, our second main point is the righteous judgment of God, verses 4 and 5. Now these two verses deal with God's judgment of men now. We'll, we'll look at the judgment of God to come in the verses that follow, but this is God's judgment, this is God's uh, decree or declaration of these men now. First of all, the judgment of their attitude. Verse 4, Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering? This is what God says, inspiring Paul by the Holy Spirit, how God views them. Despisers of God's goodness and forbearance and longsuffering. In other words, we can know that God is longsuffering, And live in an unrepentant state with that knowledge. And therefore despising his goodness. Despising his forbearance. Someone has said that the goodness of God is a fearful doctrine. And because God is good, he will not overlook sin. We are to get our attitude right regarding God's judgment. Matthew Henry notes... Means our mercies. In other words, the means God uses our mercies to us. And the more light we sin against, the more love we sin against. Low and mean thoughts of the divine goodness are at the bottom of a great deal of sin. Low and mean thoughts of the divine goodness are at the bottom of a great deal of sin. But also judgment, secondly, Judgment of their knowledge. Not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. Or a sort of a a willing ignorance regarding the goodness of God. In other words, people who say, oh well, you know, God is good. But the whole point of God's goodness is to bring us to repentance. And you are, to use the phraseology of Peter, you are willingly ignorant of this fact. That the reason God extends his goodness and his patience towards you is to give you time to come back to him in genuine repentance. But thirdly, judgment of their heart. So judging their attitude, their knowledge, but also their heart. But after thy hardness and impenitent heart, treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. You see, the reason their attitude was wrong and their knowledge was misapplied is because their hard hearts. Because of the hardness of their hearts. As we come to the means of grace this morning, part of the means of grace, an essential element of the means of grace is to soften us. To soften us in in our relationship with God, to love Him more. To to recommit ourselves to Him. So you've, you've lived a week cold, spiritually cold. And now it's time to come back to the Lord 
and say, Lord, I've sinned. Not, it's not time to come here and say, Lord, I, I, I did the best I could. You know, I'm, I'm a religious person. No, Lord, I've failed. Lord, I've sinned. Soften my heart. Human religion produces hard hearts, self-righteous, indignant hearts. A relationship with the Lord produces a soft heart. A heart that Christ has um, made receptive to his word. And here God judges the self-righteous religious heart as one that is hard. And then our third point, which we'll spend a bit more time on, is the basis of God's judgment, verses 6 to 16. Now Paul deals with God's judgment to come. And he deals with the grounds or the reasons for this judgment. There are four. There are four grounds or there are four bases or or four reasons for God's judgment in verses 6 to 16. And first of all, man's works. First of all, man's works from verse 6. And notice, first of all, it's universal reality. Who will render to every man according to his deeds. Now this rejects easy believism. There's a, there's a sort of a, you know, an idea in the, in the church today, in, the, in the, the broader Christian church, that all you need to do is to accept Jesus. And it really doesn't matter how you live. It really doesn't matter what you do. Once you've accepted Jesus, that's all that matters. No, it says here, who will render to every man according to his deeds. Brothers and sisters, we need to be holy. We need to live lives of holiness that begin in the heart, not hard hearts, not bad attitudes, but a a soft heart, a, a pliable heart towards God that wants to do his will, that wants to obey him, that loves the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, that has been made willing in the day of his power because every man will be judged according to his deeds. Now, we're not saying we're saved by works, of course. That's not what Paul is saying. But he is certainly saying that every man will be judged according to to his deeds. In other words, as James says, faith without works is what? Dead. A true believer will manifest that in the life. Not perfectly. There will be times of great failure, times of backsliding, yes. But the works will come. They will be manifest because when God plants the tree, there will be fruit of that tree. And then it talks about works that lead to eternal life, which is, in verse 7, the perseverance of the saints. It's a wonderful verse. I've actually, I think even when I looked at Romans before, I'm not sure if I thought of it in this way, but verse 7 is such a wonderful verse for the perseverance of the saints. To them who by patient continuance in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. So as we left our house this morning, there was people cleaning the estate. They brought out their shovels, their, their bags, their bins, and so on. 
And, and you know what one of the, the motives was? There's going to be concerts in the, in the local in Marley Park. And they're saying, whoever's first in to clean up the estate will, will get tickets for the concerts. So people are out. You know, because what they're seeking what? To go to a concert in Marley Park and they're out doing their works. Well, here, the, the saint is promised glory, honor, immortality, eternal life by doing the works that God seeks us to do. By doing the things that God wants us to do. That's, that's not unbiblical. That's exactly fitting in with the gospel. Living a life worthy of the gospel. Living a life that will honor Christ. To love Christ and to, and, and to display Christ in my life. To be like Christ in this world. Listen to what Matthew Henry says on this. There is a holy ambition. Which is at the bottom of all practical religion. This is seeking the kingdom of God. Looking in our desires and aims as high as heaven. Not looking for concert tickets. Looking for glory, honor, immortality, eternal life. And resolved to take up nothing short of it, he says. Nothing less than glory, honor, immortality, eternal life is the goal of the Christian. We're we're not just looking to get by. We want the best. We want to reign with Christ in heavenly places. This is the is that your goal? Is that your goal this morning? Is is that alone what you will settle for? Nothing less than that. The world settles for much less, doesn't it? The world has this fixation with just sort of, you know, extending their miserable life in this world as long as they can. So that's why they were so afraid of COVID. Because it will shorten my life in this world. The believer has no fear. Why? Because we're seeking a a far greater life. A a far greater glory. A a far greater existence. Than anything that this world has to offer. Sometimes I say to people. Listen. Everyone who really wants to go to heaven. Will get there. That's true isn't it? If you really want, and I'm talking about in the depths of your heart, if you really want to go to heaven, the, the problem is the people who don't get there don't really want to go. They don't really want to be with Christ. They don't really want to, to obey Him. And therefore, they, they don't get there. It's those who seek for it, get it. Seek and you shall find. Ask and it shall be given. Knock and the door shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asks, receives. Everyone who seeks, finds. And everyone who knocks the door, the door shall be opened for him. It all comes back again to God's righteous judgment of our hearts. But there's also works that lead to wrath. Verse 8. But unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, What's the result for them? Indignation and wrath. Again, Henry says this. Every willful sin 
is a quarrel or an argument with God. It is a striving with our maker. That's what sin is. Sin is rebellion. It's saying to God, we will not have you reign over us. And that's why Isaiah 45 verse 9 says, Woe to him that striveth with his maker. And fourthly, evil doing will be met with tribulation. Verse 9. Tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that doeth evil of the Jew first and also of the Gentile. And sometimes we see news reports and we hear of terrible things done and, you know, the person, quote-unquote, getting away and not being caught. Well, there is no getting away with it. There is no escaping the judgment of God. And that's why Scripture tells us it is mine to avenge. We don't have to worry. We don't have to fret. We don't have to sort of have sleepless nights because all of this will be put right on that day. Evil doing will be met with tribulation. And fifthly on this last point, good work shall be rewarded with glory, honor, and peace. It's every man that worketh good. Now the point is this, now get this, It's only those who are saved can work good. That's what Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9 tells us, isn't it? For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves is the gift of God, lest any man should boast. But then we're saved unto good works. The only ones that really do good works are those who are saved by the grace of God. And notice the impartiality of God in this. Verse 11, For there is no respect of persons with God. Now, that might raise a question in your mind before I'll anticipate maybe a question later on. Well, the scripture says that God elects people, yes. And in that sense, there is partiality. In God's election and predestination, there is, but this is not talking about that. This is talking about the judgment of God of our works, what we do. So, Henry again says, as to the spiritual state, There is respect of persons, but not as to outward relation or condition. Jews and Gentiles stand on the same level before God. God does not save men with respect to their external privileges. And this is again so important. God doesn't choose us because of anything we've done. That would be a contradiction. And that would contradict this. Now God's election, and this actually... Think about this. This disproves the Arminian view of election. Because if God chooses based upon something I do, even believing, that's having respect of persons. But God's election is completely devoid of anything we have done. It's completely of his choice alone. And therefore there's no contradiction here. And therefore, the idea that, well, if I'm a Jew, God will save me because I'm a Jew. Well, if I'm a, a Baptist, God will save me. If I'm a Presbyterian, God will save me because I'm a Presbyterian. No. No external privilege. No home I'm brought up in. No religion I'm brought up in. No nation I'm brought up in is the basis of why God would accept me. 
So the question as we come to the Lord's table this morning is this. What am I really? What am I really inside? Examine myself. Examine the sin of my heart. Come before God, not with any external privilege, anything I've done, but come before God just as I am. Inside, really. And have dealings with God on that basis. The God who judges, not as man judges, but who judges the heart. And then the second basis of God's judgment is the law. Verses 12 and 13. Notice the absence of the written law is no means of escape. For as many as have sinned without the law shall also perish without the law. Now get this, there's no hope of salvation here. So again, those on the Arminian side and the Universalist side and so on almost make it as if, well, if someone's never heard the law of God or never heard the gospel, there's, there's hope. No, there's no hope. There's only condemnation here because as many as have sinned without the law shall perish without the law. And we'll see the reason of this in the third grounds when we get to it in a few moments. There's no salvation without the gospel of Christ. And that's why it was the Calvinists who went into the mission fields. You know, the hyper-Calvinists held the view in, in William Carey's day that, well, if God wants to save those in India, he can do it himself. He doesn't need you to do it. But no, God has only commanded one means of salvation. And that is the gospel of Christ. But notice, secondly, the mere possession of the law is no guarantee of deliverance. It says, as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. The law does not become our salvation. It becomes our judge. And that's the purpose of the law. The very purpose of the law is to show us what we really are. Not so we can brag and boast in our keeping of it, but to mourn in misery at our failure to keep it. Well, that's what Romans 7 goes into, isn't it? Where Paul thought he knew the law. He thought he understood the law, but he didn't. And so when the law really became alive to him, what happened? He died. He thought he was alive. He thought he was religious. He thought he was righteous. He thought, according to Philippians 3, that he had a righteousness that was superlative, that was, that was something that God would, uh, by every means, accept. But then he realized that it was pure rubbish, excrement in the sight of God. And then it became so in his sight. So the Jews took refuge in the thought they were the receivers of the law. And yes, that's an advantage. And he, he goes on to deal with that later in this chapter and also in chapter 9 and so on. There is an advantage, but not just in the possession of it. So some people have, I remember when Michael was in Romania years ago, you know, some people would take Bibles and just bring them home. He told me, and just put them under their pillow. They thought just the possessing of a Bible, just to have a Bible was somehow a spiritual blessing. 
No, it's knowing it, it's obeying it. It's loving the God of the Word. So how much have you been in the Word this week? I'm not saying that to make you feel bad. Preachers know the easy things to say to make you feel bad, don't they? So I'm not saying it just to make you feel bad, but to inspire you. Make this week, dedicate yourself. If you've not been in the Word, dedicate yourself this week. A new week, a new day. This is the the first day. Isn't it wonderful that God gives us a first day every seven days? We don't have to wait till the 1st of January. We have it every seven days. It's a new week. Begin this new week with, with fresh desires to know Him and His Word. And that's why verse 13 says that the only acceptable use and application of the law is what? Not the hearers are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. And again, we're not talking about legal righteousness. We're talking about those who by the grace of God, who are, well, there's two ways, isn't there? There's two ways. Yes, if you perfectly keep the law of God, never fail, you are justified that way. But if you keep the law of God in your heart by grace, you are also a justified soul. And then thirdly, the third basis or grounds of God's judgment is the conscience. This goes on from the previous point. The reason why the the Gentiles are not saved by the absence of the law. Because the motions, the actions of the Gentiles is a law by which they shall be judged. Verse 14. For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law. And this is not saying that they obey the law perfectly. It means they have a conscience that drives them to know what right and wrong is. In other words, even tribes and peoples that have never heard the gospel, never heard of Christianity, they have a set of morals based upon the conscience that God has put within their souls. This, by creation, that God has created in them, this conscience. And therefore, though they do not have the the tables of stone They have it written on their conscience. Now this is different from Romans 7. When Paul says, I love the the law after the inward man, this is not what this is saying. This is not loving the law. This is not loving the Lord. This is realizing what right and wrong is. And it's a consequence also of 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 the first sin. The day you eat of this, you'll know good and evil. You'll have a conscience. You'll lose innocence. You will lose purity. You will have this warfare of conscience going on within you. You know it's wrong to do certain things. You know it's right to do certain things. And in the moment you do what is wrong and don't do what is right, what happens? You are condemned by your conscience. You don't need the law of God. Your very conscience condemns you. Again, as Matthew Henry says, conscience is the candle of the Lord, which was not fully put out, or not quite put out, not even in the Gentile world. 
Secondly, the conscience of the Gentiles is a means of judgment, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness. And we might add the words against them. So the work of the law is to convict and convince of sin. The power, get this, get this, the power to condemn, but not the power to save. There's no promise here. There's people who read these verses and think that what this is saying is that there's a possibility of salvation for those who have never heard the gospel. That's not what this verse is teaching. There's no hope outside of the God. We need to understand that. There's absolutely no hope outside of the gospel. Thirdly, their thoughts a means of judgment in time and eternity. It says, their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. Again, as Henry says, conscience is a witness and first or last will bear witness. Though for a time it may be bribed. I love the way he puts this. Though for a time it may be bribed or browbeaten. What happens is this. That people ignore their conscience. And, and get this brothers and sisters. Here's the wonderful advantage we have in, 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 in gospel. We have, we have a, a, an enemy of the person that's a friend of ours. And that's their enemy, their conscience. We have a friend on our side when we share the gospel with unbelievers. Because that conscience within agrees with us. And that's why I'll often say to, to somebody who says to me, well, I'm an atheist, I'll say, no, you're not. I don't accept that at all. Because you know there's a God. Because there's times when you've called out to that God. In your difficulties. I remember calling out to God before I was, I was converted. Because I knew God was there in those moments. I would cry out to him. The conscience is a powerful friend we have in our witnessing and evangelism. And let's not, let's not sort of buy into the trick of the enemy. And when we should just, you know, you, you meet an atheist and you spend about two hours with them. And you try and talk about evidences for God. What a waste of time. Get straight to the point. You know there's a God. You know you're a sinner. You know you need something more than you have. And that is Jesus Christ. And that's it. It's a much easier way and a much more powerful way to share the gospel. You skip all, all the, 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 the unneedful stuff. And, you know, I remember spending two hours with people and walking away exhausted. They walked away feeling better because I was exhausted. And they walked away thinking, well, it was only an argument. And never were they convicted of their sin. Never were they convicted of their sin. So the presuppositional method is much more than a theory. It's the biblical method. Preach to the lost. And then lastly, the gospel. 
the fourth basis or the fourth grounds of God's judgment. And it really is the all-encompassing, isn't it? Because this puts everything in context. Because verse 16 says, In the day when God shall judge the secrets of men, how? By Jesus Christ, according to my gospel. There is a judgment day. There is one judge, God himself. There is the exposing nature of this judgment, the secrets of men. Oh, God knows what we do in secret. And that's why, brothers and sisters, we have to deal with the secrets. We have to deal with the secret sins. That's why the Lord Jesus said to the Jews, cleanse the inside of the cup first. Don't concentrate on the outward appearance. Don't concentrate on on, putting on your your flowy robes and, uh, and praying your long prayers. Cleanse your heart. And then the outside will be cleansed also. Concentrate on character. Reputation will look after itself, someone has said. So often we, we worry about reputation. Forget reputation. I'm not saying that in a negative sense. I mean, we, you know, we shouldn't just live the way we want either. Some people live that way. That's not what I'm saying. But concentrate on character. Concentrate on your heart. For out of it are the issues of life. Keep your heart, the scripture says. And what's the standard of this judgment? The day of judgment, the one judge, the exposure of nature. But the standard is what? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the standard of judgment. And therefore, if you're trusting in your good works, if you're trusting in your law keeping, you better be as good as Jesus Christ or you're condemned because he is the standard. It's according, the perfect man, the man who never disobeyed God, who always loved the word of God, who always loved the law. He is the standard. But the wonderful thing is the gospel tells us, as Romans 1.16 tells us, that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. For who? For everyone that believeth. That trusts in him. So Christ is, is either the standard that you must, must attain to. Which we've already felt failed even by our birth. Or he is the means of my salvation. The one who has kept the law in my place. The one who has satisfied the righteousness of God. On my account. And on my behalf. And therefore the context of it all is the gospel. Conscience condemns me. My works condemn me. My heart condemns me. All condemns me. But there's one who can save me. The Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore he gave himself. Nailed to a cross. Suffered in my place. Mm. 
that I might be, as Paul says to the Corinthians, in him we might be the righteousness of God. And therefore, we can say again with Matthew Henry, nothing speaks more terror to sinners or more comfort to saints than this, that Christ shall be the judge. That's terrifying for the unrepentant. It is comforting for the believer. Christ is not only my judge, but he is my savior. Amen. Let us sing from Psalm uh, 33, verse 12. Psalm 33, verse 12 to verse 17. That nation, blessed is whose God Jehovah is, and those a blessed people are, whom for his heritage he chose. Psalm 33, singing from verse 12 to 17. Let's stand to sing. nation blessed is whose God Jehovah is and most a blessed people
Father, we, we bless thee that thou art the God who is righteous. And Lord, as we'll learn later in this letter, that the God who demands righteousness has provided a righteousness apart from the law. A righteousness that is alien to legal righteousness. That we cannot attain by works are by obedience, but only by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. So, Lord, help us. Help us, Lord, as we've looked into the perfect law that shows us what we are. May we run to Christ because of what we are and because of who he is. We are the sinner. And he is the Savior. Bless us now and continue with us. And may we partake of the Lord's table with true blessing to our souls. In Christ's name. Amen. 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 Let's see, please.